and welcome to the Ensel Court Podcast. I'm Lauren Mallon, Ensel's Marketing Coordinator, and I'm joined today by Ensel Court's Director, Grey Hill. How are you doing, Grey? I'm good, thanks, Lauren. I'm good. really happy that we're finally able to put out this second episode of our podcast. Very I've exciting. been looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. And it's a really fascinating topic this time. We are taking a peek behind the curtain, as it were, of something that is truly unique to Insul Court. And that is our immersive walkthrough exhibition, This House is the Stage. Set across the first floor of our iconic mansion, visitors can wander the abandoned rooms in which the Insul family once lived, experiencing their triumphs and tragedies through an exciting mix of audio technology and drama. So it's not really your average museum exhibition. Now, this is only our second podcast episode, but we've loved bringing them to you. So we'd like your help in producing future in so-called podcast episodes. If you run a business in Landaff or in the wider Cardiff area, or if you know someone who does and may like to get in touch about sponsoring a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. Lauren, what's the best way for people to get in touch with us? So it's really easy. We're simply asking you to send us an email to inquiry at insulcourt.org. And as Grace said, we would absolutely love to hear from you. We'd love for you to get involved because at the end of the day, who doesn't want to be involved in a podcast at the moment? We also love your feedback. Please don't forget to rate and review. And if you really like us, you can hit the subscribe button so you won't miss a future episode. You can also still check out the previous episodes, which was a fascinating interview with Vanessa Cunningham and Gaynor Howard of the Insul Court Archive Research Group, and that delves a little bit deeper into the Insul Court family history. And also, if this podcast hopefully inspires you to come visit us and This House is a Stage, the exhibition is open now. Tickets start at just £5, but if you're an Insul Court member, you can visit the exhibition absolutely free. You can check out our website for more information on signing up to the Insul Court membership scheme. But for now, let's join Grey and the Hot Rod team and chat a little bit more about this house as a stage. Let me dream of your charms again just before we part. I get so lonely without you, it's my great pleasure to welcome Mark Woods and Mike Gardham from Hot Rod. Guys, welcome to the Insult Court Podcast. Morning, Gray. How are you doing? I'm Hi. good. Hi there. Uh, I'm so happy you've been able to join us today. I've been looking forward to this uh, since we first decided to make an Insult Court Podcast. This was one of the first ideas we had for interesting guests uh, to come and share some of their Insult Court stories. Uh, so you're here today to talk to us about This House is a Stage, which is an amazing but quite unique exhibition uh, here at Intel Court. But before we talk about the exhibition itself, mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit more about you guys and, and Hot Rod. Uh, so can you tell me what Hot Rod does and what is it that you do there? Mike and I, we work for an exhibition design company, Hot Rod Creations, and Hot Rod uh, works on exhibitions, museums, and heritage projects and um, the Insole Court project came about uh, I think through a pitch. Yes, I think I think, so. I think it was. It was an interesting pitch but it, so, so the kind of work that we do is to a castle or a, uh, an interesting place get some money to do an exhibition they have a rough idea what they might want it to be about but they don't know how to create one and so we come in at that stage and say What's your story? What have you got? Um, do you have any good pictures? What do you want the audience to feel and know and understand at the end of it? And create an experience that will do that for them. Yeah. My first impression of Insole, I can remember coming here in, I think it was December of 2017. 2017, yeah. yeah. It would have been a long time back. Uh, and I think my first impression, is most probably the same impression that you have from everybody else, was I can't believe Insole Court exists. And it looks like it does, and it's in the middle of land of... Um, I have family who live not too far away, and I'd never heard of Insult Court, and I'd never seen it before. Everyone says it's a hidden gem. It's a, yeah, completely. Yeah. I remember putting out the tender, yeah. putting out the call for uh, heritage uh, interpretations and exhibition design companies. We'd been working on uh, an exhibition already um, that wasn't quite working out as we wanted it to, um, just some creative differences. 
So uh, we decided to start again. Unfortunately, we didn't have a very big budget, but we still put together a brief. And we spoke to a few exhibition companies, and they all came in with their interpretation of our brief. Yeah. You guys came in, and you basically ripped up the brief. <laughs> we did. Um, and said, no, we, we don't really think that's the right angle on it. And yours really stuck out, because if I remember rightly, you basically said, only you can tell insult stories. Don't try and tell the stories of the whole of South Wales industrial heritage. Tell it as a, uh, almost a prism to then see the industrial stories. I think what's interesting, you mentioned about budget. I don't like thinking of a project with a budget, even though it's really important to know how much you've got to spend. From our point of view, we want to try and tell the story. And it's, it's about storytelling. And you're also thinking of how that story is going to be interesting. Because it's pointless telling a story is dull, because no one then wants to go and see it. And so our thoughts were, we want to tell the story brilliantly so that people want to come and visit Insole Court and understand who the insoles were. But then also, you know, you've got one eye on the, on the budget thinking, what can we do? What can we do? And my first impression of the house, when you walk in, the downstairs feels exactly like you imagine insole court would have felt if I was an insole and I was around in 18. Yeah. Downstairs is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come upstairs and wow, it looks like it's been hit by a bomb. Yeah. The, the upstairs was so empty and so desolate and so... Um, so derelict. So derelict. You could see sort of plaster lines on the wall where on, you know, a huge room had been subdivided up or there were new sort of 1950s fireplaces in a room which would have had an old Victorian fireplace and there was plaster. It was a real mess. Yeah. And, and that was quite a shock, I think, it because was. It's such a con- it was such a contrast to the yeah. ground floor which had been beautifully restored mm. that the first question was, well, you can't restore this because there isn't the budget for it. You could restore maybe one room. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to do something that starts with it as yeah. it was. And at that point, that dereliction then becomes a feature a that you the, try and use. Yeah, a part yeah. of the actual project. And actually, from, from my perspective, in terms of, let's say we had the money. Let's say that uh, we could restore every room mm. on that first floor exactly as the insults had it. Where do you begin? We've got photographs, I think, of one or maybe two of the bedrooms. And that's really all those rooms were, dressing rooms or bedrooms. Yeah. There's one little bit, which is a scene with some of the insults' children, um, that we think was their loo. Yes. Uh, you know, so, so restoring it literally as, <clears throat> as the insults yeah. had it, it would be fabrication. It wouldn't be authentic and you would essentially just make bedroom after bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't tell you anything significantly different from what you learn on the ground floor of this was a very fine house, it had nice things in it. It would just be a repetition of the same Or it would be like the stately homes you go and visit. Yeah. Where, you know, you've got a dining room and you've got a beautiful kitchen and you go and see, yeah. you know, go and see a bedroom. Your and period then, yeah. furniture with pine cones to make sure you don't yeah, sit, you on sit on the chairs yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, actually, I think that's the difference. I guess yeah. that's something that we, we really try and run with here um, is that it's dereliction and it's um, distress. Uh, yeah. It's vulnerability is a big part of Insel Court's whole history, mm. really. Uh, that doesn't mean we... We like having the roof leaking, or, or uh, but I think those those rooms were last used as flats in the 1970s. They were abandoned then um, for decades, um, yeah. and obviously had had got progressively worse. The uh, Intel Court Trust did spend some money on those rooms. We stabilised them. We made them safe. But as you rightly pointed out, they are yeah. still in quite an advanced state of distress. So we've used them. You use them more like a stage set. I think what was interesting about it too is on the first walk around, you're walking into big empty spaces. And I can remember walking around feeling like it felt like a ghost story. You could almost imagine people in these spaces, even though they were no longer there. And you could imagine furniture in them, but that wasn't there either. And there were just like little bits which were left, which kind of gave you an idea that these rooms were rich. So you had like a tiny bit of wallpaper left, or you know, there's a bit of moulding around a door, or the, you know, the doors are beautiful. The, the handles on a door are beautiful. They're not flats in a bedsit kind of doors. And I can remember the day that I was walking around for the first time, it was cold, and there was no heating on, so it, you, know, you could see your breath. And that little room that you mentioned earlier, which was that little one, almost like a hexagonal one, which sort of looks up the drive. I remember walking in there and thinking, 
what the hell are you going to do with this space? (laughs) Like, what are you going to do with this? And just thinking that it feels like it's going to be a conversation in here. And we thought, maybe there's something happening out of the window. You're looking out of the window, you're seeing the drive. And you're above the entrance. And we thought, it'd be nice to do something about a conversation. And that was like the little germ that started everything. Mm. It was that little space of thinking, there's something in here. You're, you're, you're listening story. in on, on people talking to each other. Yeah, that you're was, a That was the, the first wall. thought about, about doing it like that. Yeah. Right. Well, why don't we meet our first insults? Uh, mm. For the listeners at home, we've got some of the audio from This House is a Stage, so we can give you a little bit of a preview. I know that quite a few people listening... Uh, won't have been to see the show just yet so hopefully this will act as a bit of a trailer for you Uh, and for those of you who have seen it this will come as a bit of a reminder so let's pretend that you've come to Insult Court you've bought your tickets for this house as a stage Mm -hmm. and you've been shown upstairs by a a volunteer or by a staff member here who briefs you explains that this is a tour without a guide uh, and that you'll be following the voices of the Insult family and that the next voice you hear will be a violet insult. Every family has its memories, until they're forgotten. But the memory of the insults is getting very faded, like an old flower. So I'm going to tell you a story about the family to keep their memory alive. It's one of those stories that has a bit of everything, a beginning with a family moving to a new town, and an end when they move away again. So let's talk about Violet. Mike, was it you who chose Violet as the narrator? I don't remember exactly how that that decision got made, but she is the obvious person because of her position in the storyline. And she's just such an interesting character as well. We don't really go into her very much as as a person, but she was an unusual woman for her time, I think, and, uh, and is a good person to represent the house. She's one of the likeable ones. I think that's fair. <laughs> yes, she, she's extremely human. She, she was, uh, for her time, she was a bit of a, an oddball because she, uh, she never married. She travelled a lot. She was extremely good at, at horticulture. And everyone who met her said that she was interesting to talk to, but uh, she criticised people rather freely, which was not the way that a, a nicely brought up young woman was meant to be. So I think she would have been one of the more interesting people to have, a, have dinner with back in, the, back in the day. Great. And I think the fact that you've chosen her as a child or as a young woman, I think is a, is a really great decision because it, it softens that introduction in. Mm. You know that you're about to hear the voices of the insoles. Yes. You're expecting a coal tyrant. Yeah. And you get a young girl. You get a young girl. And, and you also, you get drawn into, from the very beginning, you get drawn into this idea that she is on a mission to try and stop these memories from fading completely. And therefore, as an audience, you are part of that mission to try and be told the story and remember as much of it as you can. So from uh, that first bit of narration, we get a little more. And uh, she tells you about George Insult, the first that you'll be meeting. And the door is opened, and you cross the hall into the 1820s. (laughs) And I'll do my best to describe this for our listeners. So you step into a room, and that dereliction that we talked about earlier is clear to see. The floors are bare. The walls are damaged and distressed. And in the room, as well as a bench for you to to sit down on, there's a basket of coals next to the fireplace and an open trunk filled with what looks like carpenter's tools. There's a stack of papers with a familiar name, Insole, and an unfamiliar name, Biddle. Insole and Biddle. And also on the walls are pictures of ships. It looks like you're at the docks, Mm. only those pictures are ripped and torn and All you can hear at this point is the sound of seagulls. You're no longer in Insole Court. Uh, You're in the Insoles flat, their first flat in Cardiff uh, in Crockupton, which is near where Queen Street is today in in Cardiff city centre. Then you hear the door open behind you and you meet George Insole. Hello, my dear. Oh, 
Your hands are cold. We've been outside all day. I know, I can tell. Oh. No fire. Didn't you get that basket of coals I sent along? Yes, thank you. But I had your boy leave them outside the back door while I scrubbed this place clean. These cottages along the canal seem very damp. I would think that a fire... Scrub first, dry later, my dear. I'm sure you know best. Um, The children? Upstairs. I'm told to stay there. Children are as bad as coals for making a mess. How was the first day at Insole and Biddle? It was uh, promising, I think. It's a matter of making your face known and liked. (laughs) And you have a likeable face. (laughs) So, Mike, that's probably the first time you've heard that in a few years. Yes, it, it takes me back to uh, to those recording sessions. But um, we were really lucky with the actors. They they did a fantastic job because you have to create a character within a few seconds that, that people want to then want to find out what happens to them. Yeah, I think one of the uh, interesting things about listening to that audio is how conversational it sounds. We wanted it to sound like a conversation. We wanted the visitor to feel like a fly on the wall. You know, you mentioned earlier on about the look of the room and the way that that worked. When Mike and I were thinking about this project, we were thinking about the insult story and how it sort of starts off small and over time it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like the house, really, like Insult Court. Insult Court originally was a smaller place and then they extended and extended and extended. And so the, the arrangement of the rooms and the story that we tell in those rooms is intentional. So, you know, the first room is actually quite small. The next room is a little bit smaller, but then it starts getting larger and larger and larger as you carry on through the story. So that the space that you occupy and the way that the insult court story sort of develops sort of feels like they're both in kind of tune with each other. Mm. That first scene has a lot of heavy lifting to do for the audience because you have to tell them that these are not rich people, that they are not here in this particular building. You know, they're they're not Welsh that they get their hands dirty, they do their own housework, and that they are not yet successful. It's the very first day that he's out there trading, and he doesn't really know if it's going to work out yeah. or not. And the penalties for it not working out, back in 1827, if you go bankrupt, are pretty severe. You lose everything. There's no limited liability. Someone yeah. comes in and takes everything that you own. You have to set a lot of scene, and that was one of the problems with this room, was trying to lay the foundation for them what happens afterwards and building the, the beginning of the story arc. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose as a modern day thing, you could look at it with hindsight and go, well, they were successful because we were standing in their house. Yeah. But, you know, we were trying to make you feel that this room wasn't actually in Soul Court, which is why in some ways it's the plainest room. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have a fancy fireplace. It hasn't got fancy windows. And we've tried to choose a room that in some ways is fairly generic in insult terms. Yeah, but one of the things that we came up with right at the very beginning was the idea that every room is about an emotion. Every room is about a moment, and every room is about an emotion. Mm. So this is a room about beginning, and it's a room about a bit of trepidation of, have I made a mistake in changing my business, changing my town, bringing my family down, putting them at risk? Because the emotions, as far as we could see, would be the same in any age, and therefore, as an audience, if you've ever started up a business, moved to a new town, or done something you're not quite sure about... You have those feelings. Yeah. And right from, I think, the opening line of that scene, when George comes in and Mary, his, his wife, greets him and says, Oh, your hands are cold. Mm. I think that's a really clever opening line because it illustrates to, uh, to the visitor, to our audience, that these are not ghosts talking to you. At that point, these are people having a conversation, a couple having a conversation that may have been in the 1820s, but that she's mm. received him or she, he's gone to her, whatever it may be, you can, you can picture it as, as you wish. But there is a, a warmth, ironically, between our, our first characters there. And, you know, at the end of the clip there, we heard you have a likeable face yes. as well. It's an intimate uh, feeling and and all the scenes are quite intimate in a sense of you you feel that you shouldn't really be listening in on this but yeah. you are and these are not people who are speaking guardedly to each other they, yeah. they are absolutely in the moment I, th- I think we're also trying to say at this point as well that they're all in it together they've decided to move from I think it was Worcester yeah. to Cardiff 
that's a kind of a big jump anyway. You've got to do that. And then you're, you're living in a house, you might not even know your neighbours yet. And you can almost picture yourself, how would you feel if you were doing this? How would you cope? You're looking for work and you're living in most probably a fairly cheap area. So um, we wanted it to feel like the, this is where they started. And um, I suppose as we go on, you sort of see how they change. It was a risk. It was yeah. a risk for them to do it. And, and it was, in fact, almost came to a complete disaster because, because <laughs> yeah. of Mr. Biddle, who was yeah. not the, uh, the, 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 the great partner that they thought he was going to be. So mm. after the uh, dialogue between George and Mary, mm. um, we have a monologue from George and this was the structure that you guys came up with for each scene Mm. that you'd have a dialogue discussion as if the walls could talk but then you'd hear something uh, a little more personal perhaps the the inner feelings of one of the people that you've just listened to Mm. and George shares some of his anxieties about whether or not he's doing the right thing but then we go back to Violet who explains what happened next, that indeed Biddle was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and that George was able to to rebuild. Mm. But then we move on by a few decades and the story also moves on and we enter a very dark room and a very dark chapter of Mm. the insult story. Uh, And this is one that I, I particularly want to hear your reflections on. Let's head into that room. It is dark. It's a small room. There is a desk, quite a large, grand desk, with a a flickering lamp on it. There are also accounts ledgers or large, grand books. This is clearly a businessman's desk. And on the walls are illustrations, pictures of mining and, and industry, but they're quite unpleasant. There's a man wearing some sort of ventilator or gas mask. And there's, above the desk on the wall, just faintly lit, what looks like an explosion. You are now in the 1850s, 1856, July to be exact. And you've entered the office of James Harvey Insull. Payments book. Jones! How can I be expected to keep track of orders if I can't find... Mr. James, sir? Jebbers? What on earth are you doing here? There was an accident at your mine this morning. I came as soon as I could, Mr. James. It's Mr. Insole now, Jebbers, remember? I keep reminding you. Sorry, Mr. Insole. Go on. An accident. An explosion, Mr. Insole. Mark, we have talked since we've opened this show and I remember having long discussions with you with both of you but in the in the run-up to it this was a hard scene to design what are your reflections on it when Mike and I were thinking about the rooms and thinking about the storyline and what stories work in what spaces we knew that the the Kummer mining disaster was going to be one of the stories Uh, it has to be as we were walking around the house you're trying to picture how you can how can we tell that story and how can we actually do that? Because it, we wanted to get across the um, the people's story within the common mining disaster. It's not just the facts. So it's, it's not a case of, I think it was 114 men and boys died and then you just sort of state the facts and it's quite cold. So we took one of the smaller rooms within the house and we changed it quite radically. We got rid of the window in there so it's darker to start with. And we painted it out a dark colour because we wanted you to suddenly feel like you were in the mine. But we also wanted you to feel like you were in the mine, but in the mine, James Harvey Insull's mind, as he's picturing it when he hears this news. And the storyline kind of evolved from, I I think we were having a conversation, Mike, weren't we, about... How would you feel if this happened today? How do you react to a disaster? And it felt like the most authentic thing, if a disaster happens is to think, how do I avoid getting blamed for this? Yeah, um, or, or it's, it's, it's even before that, isn't it? It's like that, that first bit of news. So yeah. somebody knocks on your door, tells you this thing's happening, and how do you react to that? Yeah. And, and yeah, how do you not get blamed? Yeah. Um, 
What is brilliant about this scene, actually, are the two actors. We were recording down Cardiff Bay in a recording studio. I think we recorded this about four or five times. And the two actors were pretty much nose to nose. It was, it was like a verbal boxing match. It was very tense. Yeah. yeah. And they were brilliant at it because you, as you're listening to it, you can feel like the hairs on the back of your neck going up and your hairs on your arms. And you're thinking, ooh, I don't like this. Yeah. So like you, this. someone is going to have to yeah. carry the can for this. Yeah. And they, and they know it. Yeah. And James Harvey's not going to carry it. He's not going to carry it. And you can tell that Jabez Thomas in this, in this scene is also thinking, I'm not going to carry the can for you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a definite one-upmanship. What I was really keen on too is to get across the people's story from a point of view of the two men in charge because the miners didn't have a say. Like they're, they're a huge part of this scene but they don't have a voice. They don't have a voice at all and um, you know we were trying to picture how do you show that there's a mining disaster going on. Yeah. So of course you can have the rumble and the noise and this. As we were adding sort of post-production into the audio, we started off with the idea that there'd be lots of sort of sounds of people gasping for air, a lot of people gasping for air. And as it kind of carried on, I think the scene's about five minutes, the gasping for air gets less and less and less and less until mm-hmm. right at the end, you don't hear anybody gasping for air anymore. They've all gone. They've yeah. all died. And there was an idea um, of having 114 miners' lamps hanging from the ceiling that gradually go out one yeah. by one. That would have taken the entire budget, as it turned out. Yeah, so, I still think it's a really beautiful It would have been idea. beautiful, but impossible. So that would have been from the ceiling, right? Yeah. 114 minus lamps suspended from the ceiling, yeah. slowly going out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so as you, as you walked into this room, it, it felt bright. Yeah. You felt like you were looking at James Harvey behind his desk, and you know he's Victorian business gent. Yeah. He's got his books, he's keeping his tally of accounts. And so the room was bright, the lights were on, and as the scene went, it got darker and darker and darker until there would just be one miner's lamp left. And that would go out and it would leave the visitor in, in darkness before then carrying on. The thing so, which did work here yeah. in this room and then is carried on, because you, you don't notice it so much in the first room, but it doesn't yeah. carry on through, is that the, this treatment of the walls is that the walls have these big graphics on them that represent what's going on in the mines of the people in the scene. Mm. Rather than trying to recreate wallpaper from the original time, which would have been difficult and a little bit pointless, you say, okay, this is what's swirling around in their minds at the time. And and that carries on through the rest of the show, really. And it, and it was a very good treatment. The, the, the guy who did it had developed a way of printing onto rice paper, I think, it, and then it was pasting the, it to the wall. It was almost like the cheapest way we could think of creating something, but also, had a, an aesthetic that feels like it fits in with the with, with the house anyway. We wanted to tear it, you know, destroy it. We wanted it to feel like it's um, old. We wanted it to feel like it's authentic. Yeah. And uh, so when you walk into the space, you don't necessarily think that this might have been a dressing room in the past or it might have been, I don't know, somebody's bathroom. You actually walk in there and think, of course it's always been James Harvey's. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a menacing, dark space. Yeah, um, it, 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 but there was one line in, in this in this scene which I, I quite liked where it becomes clear that Jabez wants James Harvey to go back to the mine yeah. to take charge and to be seen and to represent the owners or the, or the leaseholders of the mine. And that's just not going to happen. Mm. And then he, he says, your father would have come. Yeah. And that's part of this overall story about how George was much liked by his miners. They gave him a silver box, I think, at some mm-hmm. stage, because he had managed to keep the mines going. And, and, and uh, I think so. there were poems or something written yeah. about the comer I steadfurred after he yeah. died. He was celebrated, liked, he was... As much as we know. As much as we know. Yeah. And that, for his son, was not the way that he... He was a man of business. He didn't visit the mine, as far as we know particularly. He was interested in the, in the leases and the contracts yeah. and, the, and the fulfilment of, the, of these things. And that's what, I guess, the challenge was for you two in creating this, is you've latched on to as much um, of the information that is documented. Mm. So, for example, in this, uh, there was the inquest that followed where James Harvey blamed the mine managers and... Uh, the managers, I think, were trialled, but were eventually acquitted, or the judge told the jury to, to let them go. So there was this terrible injustice that no one was held accountable, despite ignoring multiple health and safety warnings and so on. Yeah. And that means that our main character in this scene is sort of the villain of the piece, 
and yet is the man who builds Intel Court. That's a hard character to create from that information. Yes. He, 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 well, he's, he's like the J.R. Ewing, isn't he? he you know, right. he's, he's, the, he's the person who you love to hate. One thing that we did do with this scene, we went up to, uh, we went up to Porth, where the Kummer Mine was. And today I think it's a Morrison's car park. And the, in the car park, there's a, there's a coal truck, sort of almost like one of the car parking spaces. Mm. And there's a coal truck there and there's like a little plaque on it. And it just says, you know, in memory of mm. the, the men and boys who died in the Kummer Mine disaster. Um, and it seems so, um, I don't know what the word would be, just so... Not very much, not, really, yeah, for, not for very such much. a big disaster. It, it, yeah, it, it just feels so depressing yeah I think yeah. you know you, you see that and you think is that it yeah. is that all you've got to sort of commemorate this yeah. scene well know? there's a little memorial here at Insole Court in yeah. the car park here which says you know that this is to celebrate the, the death of the of these 140 yeah. men boys but also of all the miners who were the source of the wealth that built this house yeah and I think that's the the problem is that there was an ocean of wealth coming into Cardiff again to a very few hands mm. who had managed to make, make it work for them. And that becomes the story of South Wales and Cardiff and the coal industry and industrial relations that drives a lot of, of what happened in this area. And the lovely thing is <laughs> that now Insol Court is here and open and that the house of James Harvey Insol is available to everyone. And we do have visitors, of course, from across South Wales. Uh, and we wanted to try and tell the story fairly. When visitors move out of this room, they walk through an arch that you lined with the names and the ages of the men and boys mm. who died at the cover disaster. And just because it's on a white wall, when you're walking from a, a very dark room, um, it doesn't need to be lit, fortunately. Mm. The, the room does that for us. Uh, I suspect that quite a few visitors don't notice it because it's very, very subtle. But I would encourage those of you who maybe haven't seen the show yet, uh, when you leave this room, do look left and right to really take in the enormity mm. of what happened, not just the names, but the ages. Yeah. It was the first mining disaster that killed more than 100 people. I think. So there were worse ones later on, but this was the first time that so many people had died at one moment. But at the end of this scene, James Harvey says this could be the death of us all. But it wasn't the death of them all, for better or worse. The, the family survived and built Insole Court. And from there, we move on now into Insole Court and the story develops. And I think this would be a great chance to issue a little uh, spoiler warning for our listeners. If you have yet to see or hear this house as a stage and you don't want to know exactly what happened to the Insol family at the end of the story, I'd encourage you to press pause, come and see the exhibition, come and see the show. It's here every day that the house is open. It's just £5 or it's free for Insol Court members do come and see it and then maybe come back to the rest of this podcast because from this point in we will be talking about the fate of the Insole family and with that I'm going to actually move ahead a few generations to a scene that's um, quite late in this house as a stage. You have an opening narration from Violet where she tells you that the Insole business has grown mm -hmm. and grown and that the next generation of insoles have really uh, transformed the company. Um, and then suddenly the, the sound of steam engines uh, getting faster and faster and getting louder and louder mm -hmm. is replaced by the sound of gunfire. Quite horrific soundscape. And then you are led by the voice into the next room and you see a sofa mm -hmm. and an armchair and an open trunk and in that trunk are a whole myriad of different objects that jump out at you there are books there's comics there's photograph albums there's a box of pen nibs there's a shaving set these are the objects of a young man 
then there's a Welsh guard's red uniform, a jacket, across the trunk and piled high around our law books and there's a pair of crutches leaning against the fireplace and a woman is sobbing. (laughs) Dear, I knew this would happen. Mother, you can't go off like this every time you look at Claude's picture. Look, I'll turn it round. How's that? Poor Claude. Freddie was so proud of him. Poor, gentle, gallant Claude. Stop it. Now you're setting me off too. Must we do this now, dear? We must. It's time. It's been over a year. The war is over everywhere but in this house. It feels disloyal somehow. But you can't keep Claude's things lying around as if you were hoping to him someday that he'd drive up in his little Renault and just pick up where he left off. No. I know. <sighs> Very well. What's next? Ooh, I've forgotten that one. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a hard scene, isn't it? So this is Jesse and Violet in Seoul. So Violet, our narrator, and yeah. now a grown woman, and her mother, Jesse. And this scene is 1919. So after the war has ended, and as you've, you've gathered from that clip, they're packing away um, the possessions of Claude in Seoul, Captain Claude in Seoul, mm-hmm. uh, who died fighting on the Western Front in, uh, in 1918. Uh, it's a very moving scene, but a very important one, because not only does it uh, explain what happened to yeah. Claude, who was the planned heir of the family business, but there's also a very important discussion between Jesse and Violet about how the world is changing. And Violet's emergence, I suppose, that there is something of an opportunity there. Mike, what are your memories of this scene? It was quite an important decision to do it in 1919 rather than 1918. Because in 1918, when when Claude dies, that would have been a very obvious moment. It would have been a very dramatic moment. We we thought about it. Yeah, we did. Um, And then we thought, no, because the, the question then happens in 1919 is what sort of world is beginning to emerge as a result of the First World War. Everything then changed and the beginning of a sudden decline in the family's fortunes and the family's importance, but also opportunities for people like Violet. So Violet, I think, is in 1919, she might have just about been able to vote, I think, the, one of the first generation of women to be mm-hmm. given status as people. Yeah. And she has spent the latter part of the war running a Red Cross hospital nearby. And the, the fate of a nice young woman before the war would have definitely been, you know, get married, have children, support your husband, you know, be a credit to the family. But most probably what, yeah. what, what her, her mother would have expected her to do. Yeah. And after the war, there's a million missing men. And also, I think just... Psychologically, she feels that there's something else that she could do with herself. She doesn't have to follow this well-worn groove. So she begins to live her life to please herself. And that's, I think, in in many ways, a very admirable result. Hmm. I do like this scene a lot, actually. You know, as we were talking earlier on, the room is a pretty grand room. And to think that this was a bedroom at some point, you know, what a bedroom. You've got brilliant views out over the garden. But again, it has that look of decay and age and we've taken a part of this space and we found some fantastic furniture you know again all the furniture and all the props and everything that we were looking for it would have been quite easy to go online and try and find exactly the right thing or you know I'm sure they would have used this in 1919 or I'm sure they would have drunk out of these sort of glasses or used these sort of um, uh, books to read Um, but we found some fantastic items that we were we found, I- we found items that we think that actually, I think the insoles would have bought that. Actually, that feels like it's got an element to the insoles to it. So the sofa and chair in there are just, I think they're spot on. I could imagine Jesse sitting on it. I can imagine Violet looking at her and having the conversation. And like I say, the, the suitcase we found and the items that we started putting into the suitcase, everything has been thought of. It's not by chance that you see these things. There's a story in everything that we've picked up. And again, the actresses in this scene, they're great. 
They were brilliant. They are really Jessie is amazing. Jessie's got a lovely voice. I really do feel she's becoming a little bit unmoored in the world that is emerging around her. Mm. And I can't understand why things don't just go back to the way they were before. Yeah. And it's that perspective that leads us into the final scene. Mm. Where I think it's fair that these last couple of scenes really become Jessie's story. Yeah. Because she is um, she's the last to leave. Mm. Um, and she's lost Claude, her eldest son. Another son, Alan, who was shell-shocked in the war, has decided to lead a, a different kind of life to that which I think that she would have wanted. And we learn in this last scene uh, that Violet has also passed away. She died young of appendicitis. And this final scene then is between her and her remaining son, Eric. So what you see is a stack of furniture piled one on top of another, all underneath a huge dust sheet that has the Harrods logo on it. There's a single table in the bay window with a vase of flowers, a vase of irises. And on the walls, there's a map of what we now call Insole Court. A map that isn't something that's come from the family. It looks like it's been created by a local authority. Because that's what's changing. It's 1932 and Cardiff Corporation, as they are, that's what Cardiff Council now, are buying the house and the land. Also on the walls next to us is a photograph, a large photograph, of Violet in Seoul. Ah, you're in here. Hello, Mother. How are you today? Eric. Good heavens! Why weren't you announced? But you knew I was coming. We arranged it last week. I mean, why didn't the maid announce you? These new girls, they don't seem to grasp the first thing. No, don't. I let myself in. I still have a key. Do you? I suppose I'll have to take it off you and surrender it to the bureaucrats, along with everything else. (laughs) Mark, I know you particularly like the bureaucrats. Oh, I love that line. Yeah. God, she really hates them. (laughs) Yeah. She doesn't want to use the word bureaucrat, does she? (laughs) She is still trying to live the life she's always lived. She just can't get the servants. Nothing works. The building is falling apart. There's damp coming through the ceiling. And yet she still is kind of saying to them, but don't just throw your coat down there. I know. Like a vagabond. vagabond. (laughs) (laughs) But the process she's in is trying to sort out what to keep and what to sell. Mm. And if you ever moved from a large house to a small house, then that's one of the uh, one of the things that you have to do is to say no. This this is no longer going to be ours. There's a line that especially resonates uh, with me when Eric uh, looks up and says, "Good God, how long has that damp patch been there?" <laughs> uh, looking after Insole Court, unfortunately, that's a daily occurrence. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really really empathise with Eric. There. <laughs> This scene, obviously, is is one that um, gets uh, a little sadder as it goes on um, because Jessie talks of Violet and that the flowers that she has there, she is dedicating to the memory of her daughter. Uh, She Mm -hmm. really did this as well. I mean, this is is another thing, uh, like so much of this house is a stage, it's fact. And Jessie did dedicate to Iris's, to to Violet. and, um, and then they have a final conversation um, about how it's not their city. Jesse says it's not, it's not our city anymore. I, I, th- I think it's interesting too, isn't it? Because we know that Violet used to hang around in the garden. Mm. And you know, for people who've been to Insole Court, you'll know the gardens are pretty impressive. But the gardens are only about a third of the size that they were originally. Today, you see all the houses nearby. But in the past, the garden kind of stretched on and on and on. And, and of course, I think the, the Western Avenue kind of goes straight through it now. And I could imagine that if Violet had lived, I think she would have felt absolutely gutted to see <laughs> yeah. a dual she carriage. Would, she would have had a few things to say about she, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she'd have been uncompromising. Yeah, un- uncompromising <laughs> and free and fair, free <laughs> with criticism, as they say. Yeah, with the JCB drivers as they yeah. go through her Irish yeah. patch. There is a moment when they, they're discussing about the house and, yeah. and all the rest of it, and then there's a moment when Eric says, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm sorry that we have to move. And at that point, Jessie says, no, it's obvious. We cannot possibly live in a house like this. Mm. And you get, the, you get that sense that the 1930s 
are a very different time from what Jesse grew up in and what the yeah. insoles used to be. And the world has moved on and the world doesn't need the insoles anymore. Mm. Another interesting piece of serendipity, I think, with this space, you know, as, as we were working on uh, on the room sets and thinking about how, how to sort of tell the story, you know, a lot of what we do is storytelling. It's how to get this across in a way that people are going to understand. You know, we know about the wallpapers of being kind of like the mind's eye view of the people. We were trying to find furniture to put into this room, which in some ways is an odd thing because you're looking for furniture, but then you're going to cover it in a dust sheet. We don't want to spend too much money on furniture you're not going to see, but you want to give the impression. Grandfather clocks, big pieces of furniture, large mirrors and things like this. I think quite a lot of it was actually found in one of the west wings of Insole Court. We just dragged them out and put them in there and covered them with the dust sheet so you get the impression of it. But uh, one of the really nice elements of this was we knew that we wanted a gramophone because we wanted something in this space that... Firstly, gave you a, a different time period because as you're walking through the story, you're going to different time periods and meeting different insoles. And so the gramophone we found the pump house, the pump it? house yeah. antique shop yeah. on Panath Road. On Panath yeah. Road, and we walked in there, and I'd, I'd sort of seen it on one of the earlier visits. We'd sort of walked around and noticed it, and had a quick chat with the market trader who was selling it. And um, at the time, we were trying to keep a close eye on budgets and thinking about well we could get it but we'll we'll see how much we've got left at the end and as it turned out you know we got to the end and we thought we really need to buy this we it's just going to add so much more and so we bought this one wound up gramophone that we were really pleased to find that actually worked um and the guy who was selling it to us said we've got a load of 78s here you know do you want to try them out i think i haven't got a clue about 78s but yeah we'll, we'll have a few of those see what they're like put them on and brought them back to Insole Court, and then we, we played them for you, didn't we? We sort of sat there in your office, and we wound up the, the gramophone, which was a bit like starting an old car. Got a 78, stuck it on top, listened to it. Some yeah. of them weren't quite right. <laughs> and again, like you say, serendipitous. We were going through, and there was one record, for example, um, the B-side of the one we chose is called Mucking About the Garden. Yeah. There's, there's Violet. Um, but that mucking about the garden wasn't the quite the right tone um, no. for, for us to play. Um, but then we had this amazing song that you had a little snippet of earlier. Jack Hilton and his orchestra's Let Me Dream in Your Arms Again. Uh, now, this was released uh, 1929, I think. Mm. So it's the right era. And it just... You know, not just the title, but the sound was so right for this lady who's now a widower, who's lost her children, who's lost her the house as it was. Yeah, who's thinking back of good times in her life. Yeah, and and it does so much to help tug at the heartstrings during the final moments. It even has a certain power for the kind of house lights coming back up and the curtain coming down. And I think we were so lucky that that just happened to be one of the records there. And it's still on the deck. Yeah. So absolutely. next time that yeah. you come see the show, everyone, listen. You know, have a look down, and you'll see That's Jack right. Hilton's yeah. on HMV, his master's voice, <laughs> 1929 shellac <laughs> record. And probably best not to, to find the handle for the gramophone, um, but it could work and it does work. It does. Um, and I think in in the development of that scene, we did talk, oh, can we make this work? Can we make it come to life? Yeah, originally I think we wanted the gramophone playing in the room and you, you saw this thing turning. But by hearing it, you, know, you, you still get the same impression. We knew we wanted something more than just sound effects. And I think the, the, the record is just the perfect choice, absolutely the perfect choice. You know, it still makes me kind of feel, uh, yeah, upset when you were. So it's a sense of melancholia, isn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So let's have one last listen then to Violet's final narration to end the show. Mother stayed on a while. It took her years to pack up the house while the council built houses and roads on the grounds. She left for London, I think she said. But I lingered on here in the old house where I had died. People glimpse my ghost sometimes. A young girl on the stairs, or in the hall. But I spend more time outside, especially when the irises are in bloom. The house went downhill for a while. Well, you can see that. But there's a new set of people using it now, and taking care of it, 
And now you're here too, of course. The song starts again and she says, come walk with me in the gardens any time. Mm. I'm always here. The final wall that our visitors walk by is lined with photographs, or more specifically, it's lined with photograph album pages. We are fortunate enough to have a couple of photo albums that belong to the family. And this one, you were able to reproduce not just the individual photographs, but to put them on the walls as they are in the book. Mm -hmm. And I love that final element of the show because it feels like it's curated by the insoles. It's their photo album. Someone at some point decided which photos to put next to other ones. But with the music yeah. and that final message that Violet is still here, mm -hmm. I take great pleasure when I open the, the door to usher people out at the end when we do get a tear or two. <laughs> um, you know, but but you did something really quite wonderful there with that last scene. You've connected people to a family a hundred years ago, coal industry, tyrants, yeah. barons, whatever you want to call it, uh, and you've humanised them. Well, that's how I see it. Is that how you intended it, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. We, we you know we wanted people to understand that even though you may not be a Victorian coal baron, uh, you may not own you know, a huge house on a large part of land. You can actually understand a little bit about what this family is like. And we, we definitely wanted to make people feel that um, what the insoles went through, they may have had incredible wealth, but they go through exactly the same sort of stories that other people go through. They have doubts, they have triumphs, they have disasters, they yeah. have arguments, um, mm. they get bereaved. You know, everyone dies in the end. So yeah. I think that... Trying to make it feel as if these are people that you could understand at a without having to use your too much imagination yeah. as just people, I think was a good way to tell the story. Because otherwise, it's so easy to represent these. You know, every coal baron was a moustache twirling villain. Yeah, um, and they're just not. People are not like that. You mentioned about the photo albums, and that was a really, really lucky thing. Um, again, a bit of serendipity in that you know we were we were, we were trying to bring these people to life, and usually when you're when you're looking at an old stately home or you're, you're looking at trying to tell the story, the images that you find are very few and far between. You don't have a lot of raw material. You know, you're, you're basing your story off historical fact, mm. usually, isn't it? So it's, you know, what happened in, say, 1919? What happened in 1932? British kind of global stories or Welsh stories. With the photo album, what I really liked about it was the fact that they're all moments that are kind of off guard. So if we'd have had photographs of the insoles that were taken by, I don't know, the Cardiff Echo, say. They would have most probably been posed, and they would have most probably been at the opening of something, mm. or they'd have been at the, you know, at the theatre, or they wouldn't have stood outside their mind, but they would yeah. have been outside the house. There's yeah. a wonderful, yeah, but these are wonderful family photos of them all in the little kid's uh, toy car, and things yeah. like that, where you just think, that was a fun moment, and yeah. someone said, oh, I've got a camera, I've got to catch this one. So they're photographs for the insole family, they're not photographs for the public. So when you look through those photo albums, and you start to get an idea of what these people are like, they do the sort of thing that we do. They just happen to have nicer clothes. Yeah. Or <laughs> but the other great resource, as, as well as the photographs, was the fact that among the trustees, there were people who really had done a deep dig into the Insole history. So Absolutely. there were yeah. uh, we a do lot have to of credit uh, Insole Court's archive research yes. group, who yeah. we both spent a fair bit of time with. Yeah. Uh, they have been researching the history of the family and Insole Court of... for a very long time. Yeah. And without that knowledge bank, really, yeah. there's no way that we would been able to anchor no. the stories with such truth. There's a, a lot of fact within what was basically a, a play for voices. Mm. That means that it is an authentic story. Where we've located them, what we know about their business, that, that is true. And mm. I think the connection to the family is the best achievement for our visitor, is that when you see a timeline, when you see the family tree, these were people that lived, did something and then died. They walked in the house that you're walking in. You know, Insel Court has uh, a long history, you know, 160 years old, but they sold the house in the 1930s, a slight bit of artistic license in that final room. We set it in 32 when the house gets sold. They actually rented it back from the council, or from the Carter Corporation for, for the five years. Uh, so they didn't leave straight away, but they did leave. Then it had a military function in the Second World War. It had a civic function uh, soon afterwards. 
And all these different things that Insole Court has been and is today a wedding venue, a concert venue for, for, for talks or food festivals and all these wonderful things that we do with it. Mm. This was built to be someone's home. It is melancholic, but there is also something quite beautiful of the fact that it is bruised, it is ripped and torn, and a bit like a, a bit like a damp patch. That no matter how much you paint it, <laughs> it always comes. Back. It keeps coming back, and that's how I think, particularly in that final room. You talked earlier, Mike, about how the images on the walls and the mind's eye, but this last wall uh, aren't deep internal images these are their photos mm. these are their memories of the generations that they spent and that was the challenge that that violet puts out in the very beginning saying if i don't tell you these stories they're going to get forgotten so mm. she's trying to plant those stories into people's minds so that mm. insoles the insole story doesn't get obliterated yeah. by history and, and, also, yeah, and also i suppose insole court's not like a hidden secret anymore Mm. You know, it's something that other people know about and yeah. spread the word. But I hope that the next time people visit Insel Court, perhaps they know it as the public library that they went to years ago, or they know it as the place where they do that great food festival or whatever. Yeah, or where but, Auntie got married or something like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. But actually, I hope that they look at it slightly differently and that they see it or try to imagine what it must have been like as someone's home, because it has a certain power when you look at it from that perspective. So, let's begin to bring our conversation to a close mm-hmm. and let's talk about what we might have done differently. Let's say if there's a, an insult court, this house is a stage two. <laughs> uh, or or if, we were, if we were able to have another, another crack at it. Is there anything that you did differently, Mark? I think in some ways creativity works best when you have constraints. And I like what we did. If we were going to do it again or we had more money... I think we'd, we'd maybe use more film footage. I think it'd be nice to have some film footage in there, which, again, that would sort of age it, because you know, we were trying to show, I suppose, technology as it changes through the room, so you could have a bit of film footage in for World War One or, or even for the late Victorian period, and that would have been quite nice. I think the miners' lamps, actually putting those into uh, James Harvey and Jabez's room, that would have been nice. It's a strange thing, because... Money isn't the end of the world. <laughs> you know, having more money doesn't mean to say you make a better story. And I think what we have achieved uh, with the budget we did, I think it works wonderfully, actually. I think it's really... really it, was, it was quite an inspiring project for us to, really to have a, a totally different way of trying to, to tell the story of a place through a sort of walk-through promenade theatre mm. feel. We'd never done that before. And doing it on a, on a small budget was a challenge because we had to have enough things in the room to create the atmosphere there's without certain, trying to recreate a, an, an authentic room. Yeah, there, there, there's, a certain, there's a right amount. <clears throat> and you know when you fit the right amount because you walk into a room and you feel like, that looks great. Mm. <laughs> or if you walk into a room and go, ah, it's a bit empty. You know, yeah. you've got to add a little bit more. If there was a sequel, it would be what's going on in the servants' quarters, I think. Yeah. Uh, and what's happening for everyone who's in the house who's not part of the insult family. Mm. What do they think of working for the insult? What do they think the insults <laughs> are like? Yeah, you yeah. probably get quite, quite a different story from yeah. there. Be interesting to, 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 to put that layer underneath. If nothing else, maybe one day we'll get that gramophone to play on cue at the end. Thank you so much for um, giving up your time to talk to me about this today. I really hope that people do come and see it because I think it's, it's an amazing show. But I hope that for people at home who, who have seen it already, uh, that this offers a little insight because, as you said earlier, Mark, there is a story in every item of furniture, every line of dialogue, um, mm. and, and certainly the music in it. it all has so much thought put into it. So I, I really enjoyed hearing some of those stories from you. Uh, you guys are still very much active. Where can people find out more about the work that you do? Uh, we have a website, uh, hotrodcreations.com, and also if, if you could go and have a look at some of the projects we've worked on. Um, at the moment, we're working up in Carnarvon Castle. Yeah. Um, Raglan Castle was Ra- Raglan. We worked down there. there. Um, yeah, St David's Bishop's Palace. That was another. Uh, another yeah. Place. We're always trying to find something new to do, and this this project did take us in, into a new direction that we have found very useful. Mm, absolutely, it's a, it's about storytelling and trying to tell a story in a location and uh, making you believe it. Good to talk to you, Greg. Yeah, it's been great fun to revisit it. Mm. Well, thank you guys. And again, if 
you haven't heard it enough from me, come and see This House is a Stage. It's here and open every day that the house is open. £5 for adults and, and free for Insult Court members. If you want to find out more about Insult Court uh, and our events and our daily programme of classes and activities, you can uh, find it all at insultcourt.org. Of course, we're on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram on Twitter and Twitter using the handle at insultcourt. And you can find me on Twitter, my handle, Mr. Great Hill. Thank you very much, and we hope to bring you another episode of the Insult Court podcast soon. Hello, Lauren again here. Just a quick reminder that if you would like to sponsor a future episode of the Insult Court podcast, please get in touch. You can do so by dropping us an email at inquiry at See you soon.